morning. Please be seated. We have two cases for argument this morning. Leonard versus the state of Minnesota and Ramler uh, Trucking versus Fish. We'll take Leonard first. Uh, Ms. Hoffman, you've reserved seven minutes for rebuttal. Yes. You may proceed when you're ready. Good morning, your honors, and may it please the court. Emily Hoffman arguing on behalf of appellant John Thomas Leonard. The issue before the court today is whether the federal and state constitutions will allow police to engage in suspicionless random fishing expeditions through hotel registries under the general inspection authority granted to them by a regulatory statute. In this case, Bloomington police were engaged in just that. They were on hotel interdiction duty, where they walked into a hotel, uh, into a hotel with nothing in mind no investigation ongoing, and no tip that a particular crime was currently ongoing in that hotel. They walked into the Ramada Inn on August 14th, 2015, and they demanded to inspect the hotel registry. They ran background checks then using the names and addresses contained in the registry on people who they deemed seemed suspicious. Again, with no particular crime. Well, can you tell me, um, does the record tell us exactly the sequence of events? According to the record, Your Honor, um, officers walked in and requested the hotel registry in that order. Um, that's the only thing the record is is particularly clear on uh, as to that. So we don't, do we know when the hotel clerk said something about the six hours and the cash payment? Was that after they got the registry or before, or does the record not tell us? I don't think the record is absolutely clear on that, but the first thing listed is requested the hotel registry and then the hotel clerk um, giving them that additional information that you mentioned. Council, um, does it matter in footnote two of the district court's opinion, um, the district court noted it's unclear whether the hotel consented to the search or um, provided the records to the police only because it believed it was compelled to do so by statute. Does it matter to this appeal that the district court never made that factual determination? I don't think it matters for the purposes of this appeal, Your Honor, because what we know or definitively from the record is that there is this statute on the books. The hotel came into the hotel under color of law and made a request that they were authorized to make pursuant to the statute, and the hotel clerk complied. I think under that, those set of facts, the, um, the turning over of the hotel registry is presumptively involuntary. Um, you don't comply with a police order because they invoke a specific statute as they walk in and do it. When police are statutory author statutorily authorized to request something, compliance with that is presumed to be Council, do we, do we know if they invoked the statute or it was just given to them? I think that's kind of what Justice Chudich was asking, and I'm not, I'm not clear by your answer. Yes, uh, Your Honor, it, it is not clear whether they said pursuant to MinStat 327.12, please show me your registry. But we do know that they were statutorily authorized to make this request. It was a statutory requirement for the hotel to provide it um, without any process for objection, without a misdemeanor being implicated. Council, where in the analysis does the defendant's um, decision to provide his information to the hotel come into play? I think the answer to that is twofold, Your Honor. I think first, a decision that implicates competing constitutional rights is not a truly voluntary choice. Well, so so you're relying on the uh, 
right to travel, I guess? Yes, I think. And uh, so just, just help me understand how staying at a hotel for six hours implicates a constitutional right to travel. Do you have any case from any jurisdiction in the United States that would support that proposition? Your Honor, I think the case that's cited in my brief, um, Science v. Roe, clearly indicates that the right to travel is not just a police officer standing on the state line allowing you to pass back and forth between the states. In Science v. Roe, the issue was welfare benefits being um, distributed to somebody who had been in the state for a short amount of time versus a long amount of time, and that implicated the right to travel. Under precedent like that, it is clearly true that um, staying at a hotel is implicated in the right to travel, and not just a hotel. The statute well, certainly there's a, a big difference between the provision of benefits that you need to, to live versus six hours in a hotel. I mean, there's no argument in this case or evidence that your client, but for this hotel, didn't have a place to live. Is that in the record anywhere? It's not necessarily a place to live, Your Honor, but certainly this hotel interdiction duty took place at 9.15 at night. So renting a hotel room from six hours at nine o'clock at night certainly implicates a place to sleep. And the statute applies not only just to hotels, but to any lodging establishment, even a campground, Your Honor. Under that, it, traveling from out of state, um, staying overnight, as the police officers noted in their search warrant, staying overnight is implicated when you are traveling from long distances from out of state. And I think that- um, Any evidence in the record that that's what your client was doing? There is evidence in the record that he was um, from Pennsylvania and was currently staying in Minnesota. Um, his ID was a Pennsylvania ID. His home address is a Pennsylvania uh, address, and he was currently located in the state of Minnesota. Counsel, let's talk about this six-hour business. Um, first of all, does the record tell us where this hotel is located vis-a-vis -vis the airport? Uh, the record doesn't tell us directly. It does give the address, and it is on American Boulevard, fairly close to the airport. And um, is there any evidence in the record, one way or the other, that somebody who stays in a hotel for only six hours is more or less likely to be embarked on a criminal enterprise? There's no evidence of that, Your Honor. There is clearly the police officers uh, thought that that seemed suspicious. They give no reasonable objective reason as to why that would be suspicious versus someone getting a bad layover or someone's flight being canceled and wanting to leave the airport for um, a short amount of time to get some rest while they're waiting for their rescheduled flight. Council, um, turning, uh, sorry, <laughs> turning to um, uh, the defendant's decision to provide this information, you know, when I look at um, 327.11, it requires people to provide this information. It does, Your Honor. Um, it sh they shall furnish to the operator. And then when I read um, 327.13, um, they can be guilty of a misdemeanor. Not only do they not get the accommodation, but it, I mean, if somebody wanted to prosecute them, for not giving information, they could be prosecuted. Certainly under the statutes written or as read on their face, that seems true, Your Honor. I mean, it might be difficult to do that kind of prosecution, but um, there, is a, there is a legal compunction to give this information. That's absolutely right, Your Honor. And that further uh, indicates that Mr. Leonard's choice to give this information to the hotel was not an entirely voluntary choice in the way that you are gratuitously sharing information with someone or telling your best friend where you're staying overnight. This was something he needed to do in order to stay overnight in the state of Minnesota. 
And that goes, I think, Your Honor, to um, my next major point, which is the reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, the kind of information that Mr. Leonard was required by these statutes to provide to the hotel um, and that law well, Let me ask you about the reasonable expectation of privacy, given the fact, I don't know how long this statutory regime has been around, but it's a long time, and um, uh, it seems to me this is very different than, for example, invading somebody's um, residence uh, and seeking this information. This is a statutory matter. It's been a matter of public record for uh, many years. Um, you're charged with knowledge of the statutes. Um, does any of that matter? I don't think it does, Your Honor. I think when it comes to constitutional guarantees, such as Fourth Amendment and Article One, Section 10, the state cannot abridge what a reasonable expectation of privacy is simply by outlawing certain behavior or by saying you're not going to have a reasonable expectation of privacy and that constitutional guarantees have to go above the statutes enacted by the state legislature or else con the constitutional guarantees are not guarantees at all. Counsel, is uh, name and address on its own considered private information? I think in the terms of this hotel registry, Your Honor, it is, because it's not just your name and o Outside of the hotel registry, just name and address. Is that public or private? Under the, um, under the Supreme Court's precedent in Brown and Prowse, I think it's clear that you do have some reasonable expectation of privacy in that sort of identifying information, at least vis-a-vis -vis police. Um, Are you, but my question is, is overall, is, does there any case law that suggests that just your name and your address is considered private information? Not how it's used, but just that information alone, that, that it's considered private. Outside of Brown and Prowse, Your Honor, um, I, I do not, I'm not aware of any um, case law that says that, but I will say that in Brown and Prowse, it's clear that identifying yourself to police is something um, which the Fourth Amendment protects you from unless police have some individualized suspicion that you're engaged in wrongdoing. Both of those cases stand for the proposition that police cannot simply demand that you turn over your identification for general crime control or out of uh, an idle curiosity, that your identity um, is, is private to you in police interactions. Um, and I think the reason is clear, Your Honor, because in this case, as you can see, once they have, or once police have um, an individual's name and address, they can initiate further investigatory steps. Like in Counsel, in that regard, a factual point. Yes. What's the sequence of events? Did the police start running criminal background checks on a number of the names, or did they only run Leonard's because the hotel clerk said he'd been there, for, was gonna be there for six hours and had paid cash? According to the record, um, uh, according to the record, they ran it on, I think, two uh, individuals, including Leonard, um, both of whom had paid in cash, um, and they opted not to do a voluntary knock and talk to the second individual, Your Honor. What's your uh, client's position on whether paying cash for a hotel room um, constitutes a reasonable, articulable suspicion that somebody may be committing a crime? Again, Your Honor, I don't think there's have any... We, have we, has it really come to that? Uh, your Honor, uh, while the police may have found some suspicion in that, I would agree with your instinct that certainly paying cash is not the kind of individualized or particularized suspicion of wrongdoing that we can... Well, but counsel, these were officers uh, on a hotel interdiction and presumably they were there um, because of the well-known problems that uh, criminals and crime hide quite well in hotels. 
You've got um, issues of sex trafficking and things like that where uh, young women can be, you know, basically in these hotel rooms for long periods of time. No one is the wiser. And it seems to me, as Justice Anderson was intimating, it, it isn't like a home uh, where we have our ultimate uh, protections in terms of our privacy interests. And what we have here is a longstanding statute which allows police officers to be uh, proactive in terms of combating crime and, public, and enhancing public safety as opposed to being reactive. And I think one could also make the argument where the, the, the intrusion here is much, much more minimal than it is when you're invading someone's home. So what's your response to, to that, that broader concern? Certainly the issues of crime control are important, and I understand the, um, the unique nature of hotels in that regard, Your Honor. Um, but first, there are plenty of innocent reasons to be staying at a hotel paying cash. Um, perhaps one's credit card is not accepted at the hotel. Perhaps you're from out of country and you're, you're going to incur large fees on your credit card for using it in that hotel. Um, moreover, Your Honor, no one is saying that police are not allowed to, um, to engage in individualized lawful investigations into hotels. If the clerk, for instance, had called the police and said, hey, you know, there are a couple young women, they've been staying at this hotel for a long time, you know, other things that seem to rise to the level of some reasonable suspicion that there is a crime going on in the room, then we would be getting into warrant exceptions, we would be getting into the kind of, um, the kind of indicia that would allow for individualized suspicion that wasn't present in this Counsel, case. Counsel, I guess on that point, and maybe you've just answered it, but I, I just want to make sure, um, what is the rule that you would ultimately have us adopt? I mean, clearly you want us to hold that the statutes are unconstitutional and to vacate your client's conviction, but what is it that the officers need? Is it, I'm hearing you say, possibly not probable cause. Is it at least reasonable articulable suspicion, or what's the rule that you want us to adopt in, in this situation? Your Honor, I would say that um, the rule to adopt is that in order to inspect hotel registry records, police need at least individualized suspicion of wrongdoing at minimum, something comparable to reasonable articulable suspicion or the kind of um, objective basis that would uh, support a subpoena. Um, subpoenas are often the legal process that are authorized um, in these kind of third-party record cases. Um, it's what the US, it's what U.S. v. Carpenter um, analyzed with subpoena power. It's what U.S. v. Miller was subject to with and subpoena so in power. And so, in these sort of hotel interdiction kinds of situations, what would the the cops would need to essentially get a tip from a hotel clerk, as you're saying, or certainly that would be one way, Your Honor. Another way would be an extended surveillance, where you're seeing one person go in and out of a hotel. Perhaps they're carrying something. Um, so again, what we would, what society would be giving up in terms of this balance is the fact that you'd be putting police officers in a more reactive position. In other words, they'd have to wait until something enough has happened to, to rise to at least a, an articulable suspicion. A slightly more reactive situation, uh, certainly, Your Honor, but not one that I think is overwhelmingly burdensome. I think that a thorough tip from a hotel clerk. Hotel clerks are certainly in a very good position to know Counsel, what's going on. Counsel, do you think we have enough information in the record to answer that question? 
um, it's kind of bringing back, I guess, to the, the question that um, I've asked you and others have asked you, but does the record really give us enough information about the series of events and what was said in that exchange between police and the hotel clerk, or is that something that really should be remanded for further development? Again, Your Honor, I think that the record has enough in it where we know that the police were acting uh, pursuant to statutory authority and there was compliance with a police request. Um, it's very clear in the record that this was a police request, not a gratuitous offering again. And I think, um, client, certainly uh, counsel, I think when you look at, is it Officer George's incident report in particular, yes. um, where he says, I was working, and I think this was a part of the um, uh, evidentiary hearing, uh, or the hearing before the district court, not the evidentiary hearing, but the yes. hearing. Um, he says, I was working a hotel interdiction detail in plain clothes at various hotel locations throughout the city, da da da. I requested the guest registry list and guests that had paid with cash. That's so exactly So he was right. very specific about what he wanted. Yes, but he also first, according to his narrative there, did uh, first request the hotel registry. Um, and again, I think it's an inspection of those records um, that that really implicates the privacy interest here. Because again, saying, oh, the guest in room 70, you know, 176 paid with cash doesn't give the police the information that they need to take the next investig investigatory step that they took in this case. It's being able to look at the, um, the guest's full name and their address and use that to run the background check that led to the escalation of the investigation here. And again, the information contained in that registry, Your Honor, it does contain the privacies of life, the sort of intimate information that society recognizes should not be presumptively available to police. It exposes the fact that you're at the hotel at that present time that implicates some, um, some privacy interest in your location, which the United States Supreme Court has recognized again and again. You do have some limited. I'm struggling with that issue as far as the privacy at a hotel, and I'm just, you know, thinking about myself, and perhaps that's incorrect, but I'm thinking about, so if I'm at a hotel, you know, it's, there's the common area, people can see me coming and going, people can see me drive up to the hotel, um, park there, they can see me entering a room, so I'm struggling with how um, that jives with when I'm thinking of other, uh, other situations like if there's if I call a chemical dependency facility and I say is so-and-so there um, they don't answer that question they don't tell me whether they're there they don't send any messages whereas if I call a hotel and let's say I ask that I want to speak to Justice Hudson they forward me to the room they don't tell me the room number but they do forward me to the room so can you help me with the difference in those scenarios your Honor, there, in that particular case, you're calling a hotel knowing that Justice Hudson is staying at the hotel. You already know that individual's name, and that's really what's lacking here. Again, where, a, where an officer could certainly observe Mr. Leonard walking into the hotel room, they, there's no indication in the record that they would have known who that individual was. Um, and it's that, uh, and it's that the hotel registry that gives them that next step to identify the individual who has walked into the hotel. And here, there's no indication in the record that the police did see Mr. Leonard walking into the hotel. Council, could I follow up with you, uh, backing up to our previous discussion, in terms of what did the district court know about uh, why the officers were there? And I'm, I'm looking at respondent's brief where respondent notes that at the time of the motion to suppress, all that the district court had what, well, the district court did not have the incident report that I just read. That was not in the in evidence. What the district court had was the amended complaint and the search warrant uh, affidavit. And those, the complaint says nothing about 
who did what, when, where, and what the cops did. <laughs> As I look at the search warrant affidavit, it does say, and again, this is Officer Melzer, he does say, um, I was checking with the front desk. Yes. That's about as close as we get. Is that enough or what, what is, do we need more findings or what does that tell us? I think that the language in the search warrant affidavit does indicate that they were asking for the hotel uh, registry. They were checking with the front desk. Um, certainly given the limited record. They weren't asking about the weather. Yes, they were not asking about the weather. They were not, um, there, again, there was no indication in the search warrant affidavit that they were um, responding to a tip, which you would think if they were, they would have included that in the search warrant affidavit as it goes to probable cause. Um, Your Honor, certainly given the limited record, a remand at minimum would be the appropriate um, thing here, although I do think that there is enough information in the record. Uh, oh, thank you, counsel. Let me ask you one other. If I want you to save some time to get to this issue of Miller and the third party doctrine, if you could yes. move to that. And I think first thing I'd like you to address is uh, the state says you forfeited that argument. You didn't, your state action argument. Um, and they're related, obviously. And because if there was no state action, then I think you have to deal with Miller. So, so I guess what I'm asking is, can you deal with that issue of that you forfeited that state action argument? Yes, Your Honor. First, I would say that... Um Mr. Leonard asserted his Fourth Amendment rights, saying that, these, that the hotel registry statutes violated his personal right to privacy before the district court. Um, he, in fact, forfeited his right to a contested trial in order to pre specifically preserve that opinion. What standing argument gets presented to the district court as, I think, a quintessential lawyer's decision and not something we can impute to the client in a knowing and voluntary waiver of his rights argument? Well, forfeitures is a little different than waiver, but but let's assume I don't agree with you on that, regardless. I mean, I think the state's point is it was never argued to the district court that the hotels were acting as uh, a proxy or acting as agents of the government. What was argued to the district court is that the statutes were unconstitutional or that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. You may be in the same ballpark, but that is a a a separate argument. And I'm wondering what your response to that is. I wouldn't concede that it's a separate argument. I think that it is a finding state action is a necessary part to finding a Fourth Amendment violation. And so it's implicated by an assertion of Fourth Amendment rights generally. Um, every, every element necessary to show a Fourth Amendment violation is implicated by an argument that the Fourth Amendment was violated in this case. I would also, um, this court certainly has within its authority to consider the issue anyway in the interest of justice, even if it wasn't perfectly presented to the district court. This is an issue that affects Minnesotans um, daily, probably thousands of them every day. And whether or not um, individuals retain a reasonable expectation of privacy in the information that they're sharing in order to rent a hotel room for the night for whatever the individual purpose that they're doing it is, is an important issue in the kind of court that this, or the kind of issue that this court should certainly consider in the interest of justice in any case. Before we get to the question, I think that the, just two quick questions. Yes. One, is there any case law that says paying cash is a re, gives you reasonable articulation? A reasonable suspicion? Not that I found, Your Honor. Okay. And um, are you trying to, are we trying to strike down, is it the sharing with police that's unconstitutional or is it the required collection of information or is it both? 
Your Honor, it's only the sharing with police without any reasonable individualized suspicion that I think violates the constitutional guarantees. I think there are plenty of um, state purposes for collecting or for requiring private parties to collect and retain certain information for regulatory purposes. Um, but where that information becomes available for police purposes, I think then we've crossed into the constitutional issue. Um, I do want to address the third party issue that um, Justice Hudson and Justice Eason had raised. Um, and specifically, I want to uh, address U.S. v. Miller. Um, United States v. Miller um, was a decision involving legal existi existing legal process to access bank, uh, bank records kept pursuant to the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, reading California Bankers Association v. Schultz, v. Schultz and um, United States v. Miller, Schultz being the predecessor case um, to that, I think it is clear that, a, that the court had on its mind that these records were still subject to existing legal process before that they were going to end up in police's hands. In that case, it was a lawfully issued subpoena. Um, and I think that you can't discuss how the court treated the privacy interests implicated in that without, without considering that this was going to be subject to existing legal process. Again, here there is no existing legal process. This was a random fishing expedition. This was a random request with no individualized or particularized um, suspicion and no, not pursuant to any ongoing lawful investigation. And the same could be true of Smith, where you can draw a distinction there um, because the information in Smith was very limited. It didn't disclose the kind of privacies of life. It was, as the court specifically noted, the numbers dialed from one phone to another. It couldn't say who was dialing the call or who was receiving the call, if the call was picked up. Certainly that does not implicate the same sort of intimacies of life than I'm staying overnight at this hotel and who I'm staying with and who I am. Um, and so I think the third party doctrine as set out in those two cases, which the state heavily relies on, is not applicable in this case. And recently, the United States Supreme Court has held that, you, that an individual does retain some privacy interests in information that's shared to some extent with third parties, and that's U.S. v. Carpenter, Your Honor. Counsel, I just want to go back to yes. the Prowse and Brown cases. So you rely on those cases for the proposition that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your identity, uh, your name and your address. And I'm, I'm wondering whether those cases even apply because they're seizure cases. And you're not arguing that your client was seized. You're arguing that your client was searched. So under the search rubric, we have this expectation of privacy, but that has both an objective and a subjective component and that your client has the burden of proof on. So help me understand why the seizure jurisprudence, which I would contend is more absolutist, than the search jurisprudence applies. Your Honor, I don't think the, uh, the distinction between searches and seizures are quite that distinct. I think in Brown and Prowse, um, certainly a seizure of the person was indicated in the first instance, but as a means to further the search. Seizures are often just the first step in getting to the search. But the issues in the case was whether the seizure, whether the stop, stopping the automobile in Prowse and stopping the individual walking on the street in Brown was a seizure for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. It, it also did specifically address the identification issue. Um, it wasn't just whether the stop was legal in Brown. It was whether or not the subsequent requirement to turn over the identification to use that seizure to further a search was constitutional. Um, and that's where I think it falls closely into this case, Your Honor, where certainly 
under, under the facts of this case, the officer did not need to physically seize Mr. Leonard's person, but they did seize his um, items. They seized his the, his information in the hotel registry records and seizures can implicate. That's way after, right? I mean, that's not the issue in the case. The issue in the case is whether it was an unconstitutional search for the hotel to give the police the name and identifying information of your client. That's the issue in the case. Yes, Your Honor. Um, again, I don't think the, the dichotomy between a seizure and a search is quite as stark um, under that doctrine. Well, I understand that an often a seizure must take place in order to further a search of identification in person. I don't think that either Brown or Prowse rests on that. I think that the issue is the search of the identification that's happening. Well, Counsel, what do you make though? Oh, what, what do you make though um, of uh, footnote three in Brown? Um, the respondent points us to that and I think it's sort of in line with the chief's point where the court says we need not decide whether an individual may be punished for refusing to identify himself in the context of a lawful investigatory stop which satisfies Fourth Amendment requirements. In your mind, what does that mean? To me, Your Honor, that means that pursuant to a stop completed with reasonable, articulable suspicion, identifications and booking questions then often follow. Um, not booking questions, that would be a probable cause. But identifications follow when there is a legitimate, reasonable, individualized suspicion of wrongdoing. That is what necessitates a lawful stop. And here that's what would also take this search of the hotel registry into constitutionally permissive territory. Okay, so that would be in line probably with many other United States Supreme Court yes. cases like uh, Florida versus the Florida case, I can't remember yeah. the last name, where we basically said, the U.S. Supreme Court said, um, this would have been fine, the this being asking for identification in that instance at, uh, at the bus stop or whatever it was, if there had been reasonable articulable suspicion. Yes, that's exactly right, Your Honor. If this search, um, if Brown was being stopped pursuant to reasonable articulable suspicion, I think that's what footnote three means, is that the, the police officer then would have had reasonable articulable suspicion to take the next step and ask for the identification. Here, if the search of the hotel registry was taking place pursuant to individualized suspicion, reasonable articulable suspicion that a crime was currently ongoing in the hotel or that there was suspicion of wrongdoing in the hotel, that would also take this search into constitutionally permissive territory. Thank you, counsel. You have seven minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Schmidt. May it please the court, counsel, John Schmidt, assistant Hennepin County attorney on behalf of the state of Minnesota. The appellant has a heavy duty and a heavy burden to prove that the statute is unconstitutional and has a burden to prove that his own Fourth Amendment rights were violated. The appellant here has not met that duty because the record is insufficient and the appellant cannot vicariously claim protection in the hotel's Fourth Amendment rights. We ask this court to affirm. Related to the standing issue, uh, again, Leonard needs to show that it was his rights at issue, not those of a third party. And the record here shows that the police asked for the, uh, the records from the hotel. 
if anyone has a right to object to obtaining of those records from the police, it is the hotel. And that is where this case fails. Council, did the records of the hotel include the room number where Mr. Leonard was staying? Uh, again, that the record here is actually pretty unclear, and it doesn't appear so. If you look at what the hotel registry is, which looks like his bill, that and as an aside, the hotel registry was only submitted when it came to the guilt phase of this. Well, how did the police figure out what room he was in so they could go talk to him? The clerk gave him that information, along with information about um, that he paid in cash, uh, information that um, he only wanted the room for six hours. So do I, do I have a reasonable expectation of privacy that um, my room number is not going to be given out by the hotel clerk? Uh, I don't know, and that would be an issue with the with the clerk because here the statute only requires your name and your address. Now, if if that is a reasonable expectation of privacy into your room number, Mr. Leonard's remedy here is to sue the hotel because then at that point the hotel voluntarily gave that information to the police, along with information about paying in cash and along with information about only wanting the room for six hours. None of that is required by the statute to be collected or shared with police. The only thing that's required to be collected and shared with police is your name and your home address, if you have a guest, your car and your license plate number, if you have one with you. So that's additional information that's beyond what is statutorily required and beyond what is uh, needs to be shared with police. And again, this, this then goes back into the fact that the, this record is not sufficient to address these issues. Is the calculus of reasonable expectation of privacy here affected in any way by the fact that this statute um, goes back to 1937, that it, uh, there's been a requirement that um, the, the, the information collected be made available to law enforcement, um, and that this is not a home or... Um, you know, a residence kind of thing. And any of those factors matter here in terms of the reasonable expectation of privacy? Yes, absolutely. And that, that goes into what was before the court at the motion to suppress phase, which is the affidavit from the police officer. And the affidavit from the police officer says that he was on this hotel investigation duty, that he was involved in drug trafficking, um, that he was stopping at this hotel within that role of investigating drug trafficking and crimes. Um, so within that broader context, uh, this wasn't a random stop. He was stopping at a place where he, the, the officers thought there could be some criminal activity afoot. Uh, and then within that, that gets into the reasonable articular suspicion, which but goes counsel, back to the is that enough, though, just that they thought, I mean, that was their job. They were doing hotel interdiction. So the whole point of that is, you know, they're looking for potential crime. But I just wonder if that's enough because they had no information about Mr. Leonard himself. I mean, they didn't know he existed. They didn't know he was there. Um, and that does seem to be sort of the, the you know, the height of just randomness and um, the kinds of things that the Fourth Amendment is designed to, to, to prevent, those sort of just random, unfettered opportunities by the, the police to, to go trolling for 
whomever they might find. I mean, so they knew nothing about him. Isn't that a privacy interest that, that we, that is reasonable and that we should protect, the Fourth Amendment should protect? This, this answering that question gets back to the, the sort of 50,000 foot view of this case, which is, again, this gets to the hotel's rights to object to their records. Um, and, and the record here isn't clear whether the hotel consented or whether the statute was invoked. And within that, we know that um, what the statute requires, but the hotel also provided a copy of his driver's license identification. That's not something that needs to be shared. That he paid in cash, that's not something that needs to be shared. That he only wanted the room for six hours. Again, that's not something that needs to be shared by the statute. The hotel but has I wonder, Mr. Smith, though, if it needs to be, I mean, are you suggesting that they needed to go in and say, I hereby invoke, you know, Minnesota statute, blah, 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 before the hotel is required to, I mean, when the officers show up and they say, we, I checked at the front desk, um, for what? I mean, I, I would assume that the hotel clerks know why they're there. They don't have to say those the magic words, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Sure, but then it gets to, and, and this goes back to what the United States Supreme Court said in Patel, that even under that unconstitutional law, the, the, because there was no pre-compliance available to the hotels, even under that, the United States Supreme Court said, you still, the hotels still have a right to consent to the search. And so when the police come in and the hotels have a right to consent to the search, then it gets down to that, as I said in the brief, the chicken or the egg question of whether or not this statute was invoked in the first place. Because it's about the Patel, which was the entire basis of the district court suppression motion, is about the hotel not having procedures in place to object. So what does the clerk do? The cop comes in and says, I want to see this. And just says no. Sure. And, and that's, that's consensual. So, you, I mean, they're, they're not going to because they're required by law to do it, right? And so how is it consensual? How is any of this consensual? How can you make that argument? Because of what other information that the clerk shared in this case. But in practical reality, the cops come in, he knows they're cops, they identify themselves as cops, they say we want to see this stuff. And so you really think that a, a clerk just sitting there is going to, like, not be influenced and coerced by the police officer's presence there? It, it, it depends on several things. What, what are the hotel's procedures? Does the hotel want to object to these searches? Because they have a business interest to keep crime off their property, to maintain their they license. They have a business interest, I suppose, to keep privacy for their clients. Sure. And, and it's, it, I just want to also ask a couple questions to follow up. Was there any, is there any case law that says just paying in cash is a reasonable articulable suspicion? The, uh, no, okay. but the case law is based on the officer's training and experience, which does exist in the, in the affidavit. I mean, I know there's an argument that pretty much anything a police, I'm not going to go there, sorry. Um, uh, and what about uh, six hours? Is there any case law that says six hours? No, uh, gives you, okay. the same answer with the training and experience in the affidavit gives you that reasonable articulable suspicion. There doesn't need to be a case that says specifically this fact or that fact or this fact. You go off from the officer's training and experience. Um, but the, the, the point about paying in cash gets back to the, um, the questions that were asked earlier of is there a case law on this and why does it matter in the analysis? The, the statute doesn't require anything about that uh, for that to be collected or turned over. And so that is where we get into this idea of 
was this statute invoked in the first place. But even following it down to its logical conclusion, if you look at what Patel says, which is you need pre-compliance procedures. If that pre-compliance procedure is in place, the police could come in with a subpoena and say, here's a subpoena, I want your records. Now the hotel at that point could object. But what couldn't happen is Mr. Leonard could not object to that. And we're right back into the same situation that we were before, where we are right now. That the police are coming in with a valid subpoena saying, I want your records, they're getting the information, the guest still has no standing to object to that because it's not a search of uh, their records. This is the hotel's records. Um, Mr. Schmidt, is it possible that, and are there any cases that say this, that yes, it's the hotel, these are the hotel's records, but are they simultaneously his records? Can they be both? Why can't they be both parties' records, joint records? Well, this is where we get into the third-party doctrine and into Miller and that sort of discussion where we're talking about the, the right, the standing to object to information that's shared with the third party. And even under Miller, that is bank records. And the bank records certainly have higher levels of privacy interests involved when you're talking about someone's financial records compared to somebody's name and address. And there's a question of whether just that alone is sufficient for a privacy interest that would create a Fourth Amendment argument and analysis. So, but you're forgetting about some other information. It's not just name and ID. It's who you're staying with. You're supposed to, the statute says you're supposed to let, uh, you're supposed to turn over everybody in your party, the name of everybody in your party. Sure. Yes, so there is some and additional And that goes into per people's very private lives. I mean, people can be at that motel for all sorts of things, all sorts of legitimate and maybe less legitimate reasons. Sure, and that, so, and it gets into the distinction of what, which part of the statute are we talking about? So it was very clear in the, in the briefs and at least the argument made here today that it's only about the sharing of the information, not about the collecting of information. Um, and so the collecting of information that goes into who's there, um, including the guest and your car, all of that is a totally separate thing that does not appear to be for the court. So, so you're saying that the fact that the state compels both the hotel and the person to give this information is, is not a consideration for us? No, at least not of what was, the argument that was made today was that we're Doesn't looking at point one two. Doesn't it go to the two. voluntariness of the, of the sharing though, in terms of the third party, um, the third party doctrine? Uh, no, uh, the voluntariness of the sharing of the individual, of Mr. Leonard going to the hotel and giving that information uh, is either not before the court or my other argument is that that's forfeited because that gets into the agent of the, uh, of the state type argument. And the agent of the state argument gets down to. But don't you have to consider whether it's voluntary to, to even apply Miller or am I confused? But I thought one of the reasons that, that the, the sharing there, uh, that it was okay in Miller is because you wanted a bank account and that was up to you voluntarily to give them all the information so that you could get your bank account. 
Sure, and that's the same as what exists here. You want a hotel. I realize that, that you want a hotel. But there's also this statute that says you have to do it or you could be subject to misdemeanor charges. Right, and that is what gets into what is the issue that's before the court today. And is it So if it's state action, if we find that either in the interest of justice or it was sufficiently raised, then that does become relevant to whether this is the state acting because they're compelling this information. Sure, if in the interest of justice, you go down the road of the agent of the government, then that does become part of the consideration. But the problem with that argument is it is a factual determination. It's a question of fact for the district court of whether the government is acting, uh, whether a person or a business is acting on behalf of the government. That question was not presented to the district court. There was no testimony uh, made. And the only thing before the district court on the motion to suppress was the complaint and the affidavit in support of the search warrant. That is not a sufficient record to make a factual finding of whether the hotel is acting as an agent of the government. And it's but also- Council, what, what else would we need to know given that the statute is a, is a, state, is a statute passed by the legislature? Um, which the police are carrying out and are acting in furtherance of, and a statute uh, which the hotel has no, uh, well, if they violate it, if they don't provide the information, they don't maintain it, and they don't provide it, they're subject to a misdemeanor. So, I mean, it's not like it seems to me in, in Buswell uh, where you had private detective agencies, I think it was, who were conducting these searches of cars as they came into this carnival or whatever it was. And there was some question about what the state knew about that and, and how the state worked. And this seems a little different to me. So I guess I'm, I'm asking, in light of the fact that this is a state statute, what else would we, have, would we need to know in your mind? We need to know what the Supreme Court said in Patel, which is the hotels have a right to consent at all times for whatever the statute is. And so whether or not, so that what would be helpful in this case is if you had the clerk's testimony or you had somebody from the hotel, the hotel manager's testimony that says, our policy is we have to comply with the statute. Or if you have testimony that says, our policy is to work with the police because we don't want crime on our property. Then it depends on whether you get into, is it invoked or are they consenting? And within that consent, I, within the argument, and I want to be clear, that I'm not making an argument that I'm asking the court to find consent existed here. The argument I'm making is the record is unclear, and there are facts in this record that would go towards showing that this was the hotel consenting, and there are business reasons to show the hotel would consent. But based on the record before the court, it's unclear whether it was invoked or not. Uh, and it's not something where the court should decide that based on speculation. Counsel, I'm trying to figure out what reasonable expectation of privacy a hotel guest may have in being in a hotel. Let's say the police come to the hotel and ask the desk clerk for a list of all the movies that the guest has watched. Uh, does the guest have a reasonable expectation of privacy in what movies he watches? Um, Possibly, uh, for what my my thought is, the reasonable expectation of privacy for the hotel guests is what is happening behind the closed door in the room. Um, that they certainly have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their hotel room. 
that hypothetical gets into the idea of this is something that's occurring inside the hotel room uh, and therefore potentially there's a reasonable expectation of So privacy. nobody uses hotel phones anymore for long distance calls, but if somebody used the phones for the hotel phone for long distance calls, would you agree that that person has a reasonable expectation of privacy in what phone calls were made and what numbers were called? Uh, potentially, yes, um, but then this actually gets back to the point of if the police are asking the hotel for that information. It's out of the person's control, right? I mean, when you are, when I'm at the hotel, I don't have control over all of that because it's actually in the hands of somebody else. So that's right. different than being at my house and using my house phone or my cell phone. That's exactly right. I mean, it, it goes to if the police are asking the hotel for that information and the hotel provides that information, then any violation of your reasonable expectation of privacy would be a claim against the hotel, not suppression of the evidence. Is it, there a case law about whether someone, whether the police can just go down the hall and knock on doors? Uh, there's consensual knock and talk cases. Yeah. Uh, in terms of specific about hotels, I'm, I, I'm not aware of any. Uh, I haven't looked at that. Um, but again, this, this gets into the idea of the police walking down the hallway also shows another aspect of the consent from the hotel. The hotel is the entity that has a right to exclude from their property. And if they're gonna let the police walk down the hallway, the hotel is allowing for that to happen for the consensual knock and talk. So that gets into the idea of their records, their property, this is the hotels. But when you're in behind that closed door, that's where you're and, and your argument is that the consent is the burden is on the defense to prove that they didn't consent, that the hotel did or didn't consent. Correct. It's the defendant's burden to show there is a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. And in order to do that, you have to show that this statute was invoked and that the statute is somehow unconstitutional as applied to him, not to the hotel. But where is the consent? Is that what, when you say the statute is invoked, is that getting at the consent issue? That gets to the consent issue, yes. Well, explain how that works. Because if the, if the hotel consents for business reasons to keep crime off their property, to keep... Um, I, I guess the question is, even if the statute is invoked, you could still argue as the state that, but they were consenting to do this anyway because of these other policies. Well, it depends, but this is where the record is inadequate to figure that out. And I'm asking whose burden then once... And I mean, Assume we assume this cops coming in, the police coming in and saying, we want to see your, your log that's required by statute. Then what happens now? Whose burden is it to prove, well, I mean, because that, that seems then like they're actually invoking the statute. I think that's a pretty reasonable, but assume we say that's reasonable. Then where does the consent go from that? Is that, do you have to dispute that then as the state? I, again, I think it's the defendant's burden to show his Fourth Amendment rights were at issue. And so when they come in and say, I want to see your log, you need something from the hotel or the clerk to say, I didn't feel like I could do anything else but show them the log. What if we just assume that from the context of the police coming in and asking for the log and the knowledge that there's a statute that says it's a crime if I don't give it to them? Then, then does it switch to you to prove that, well, actually, that's not what they were thinking in that, this particular context? Uh, potentially that could switch the burden over to say, all right, now you have to do something else to show that that was not a voluntary turning that over. But also when you're looking at that in terms of the consent question, you also need to look at what information was turned over. 
if you're looking at the information that was turned over, if it's only your name and address, your vehicle and who else was staying there, it's a lot better evidence that this statute was invoked and that the clerk was only turning over the information that is required by statute. When you look at all of the other stuff that was provided in this case that is not required by statute, it looks a lot more like consent. Again, I'm not asking the court to make that conclusion here. What I'm saying is this record is not sufficient to determine that one way or the other. And what do we do with that then? Is that a remand to, for more information or is that just the defense loses? I, Personally, I think the defense loses. You're stuck with the record you made and the record that was made here at the district. But what if the burden was on you to prove consent? You just acknowledge that in some circumstances the burden could be on you to prove consent. So then what happens? Um, a couple of things. One, um, I, I don't think it's that the burden's on us to prove consent. I think in some circumstances it could be. In this circumstance, it's on the defendant to show that his Fourth Amendment rights were placed at issue. Uh, two, even this this issue of the, the collecting of the data, none of that was raised below. So in terms of what the state would need to show at the district court, we made the arguments that were necessary to fight the issue that was raised at the district court, which was Patel, and put the evidence in at the district court that was necessary. So within that idea of what do you do with this case, the, the thought would be this to affirm the Court of Appeals maybe on different grounds, but to say this isn't set up properly and in the right circumstances, maybe we have concerns about this and you wait for the right case to come here. But this isn't it. Unless the court has any other questions, we ask that you affirm. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Hoffman, you have seven minutes for rebuttal. Uh, thank you, Your Honors. Uh, I just want to hit a couple of points uh, on rebuttal here. The first, I want to address um, Justice Thiessen's last question and the last little um, discussion about whether or not the hotel consented to um, provide this information to police. Again, when individuals, um, when an individual is driving a car and sees a police car come up behind him with the lights flashing, he does not pull over to the side of the road because he's consenting to, to be searched. He is pulling over because it is his statutory requirement to do so, or he's committing a misdemeanor. This is common sense. We all know that you comply with statutory requirements because it is criminal for you not to. When the evidence in this case is that the police came in and um, under color of law made a lawful request that they had the statutory authority to uh, make, and the alternative was to commit a misdemeanor, there, you cannot presume consent. That is a presumptively involuntary interaction. But you're asking us to presume the opposite. You're asking us to presume that the hotel gave this information uh, because of the statute. Yes. In and and what, what, what I'm wondering about, I guess, is in light of the fact that it is your, I mean, you don't contest that you have, that your client has the burden of proof here, do you? No, you're on. Okay. So in light of that, that it's your burden, 
And in light of the fact that the hotel here did more than simply comply with the statute, that they provided additional things, why isn't there at least a question of fact created about whether the hotel did this on its own or did it in compliance with the statute, as you're asking us to assume? And if there's a question of fact, doesn't that mean you lose? Your Honor, I think if there's a question of fact um, that this court doesn't feel it can resolve um, based on the presumption of criminalization of opposite behavior, that a remand is appropriate to more fully develop the record in but, this case. But why would that be the case when it's your burden to, to prove, and you're asking for us to strike down the statute as unconstitutional, right? Your Honor, to the extent that the statute allows for, um, for searches that don't involve any individualized suspicion or not pursuant to any lawful investigatory authority, if that's how the statute uh, is read to apply, then yes, the 327.12 is unconstitutional in that application. Um, if 327.12 in the inspection language in 327.12 implicates some, you know, inspection pursuant to a lawful investigation or inspection with a warrant, um, which I don't think it's unreasonable to read the statute to imply that sort of individualized suspicion, um, then the statute isn't facially unconstitutional, but given that the police here lacked any of that individualized suspicion or lawful investigatory um, authority, that then the statute is unconstitutional as applied to Mr. Leonard. In Counsel, the, um, the uh, incident in this case occurred after Patel was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court, right? It did, about two months after. So Honor. presumably uh, a well-aware hotel owner would know that um, the hotel owner could demand a warrant? Your Honor, I don't think that that can be presumed um, from this record. First, it wasn't the Minnesota statute that was struck down in Los Angeles v. Patel. Um, and there is no movement by the legislature here to, um, to bring the statute into compliance. I think a hotel has a good reason not to wanting to get involved in expensive litigation. Um, regarding that, given that it had not, it was not a, all statutes that are hotel registry okay. statutes are unconstitutional. It was the uh, an Another question, um, the hotel clerk, in some way the police determined where Mr. Leonard was staying, which room he was in, right? Yes. Does the record tell us how that information was procured? Was it on the register or was it something volunteered separately by the clerk? Your Honor, it appears by my review of what the hotel registry is or what was presented to the trial court as to what the hotel registry information was that his hotel room was listed on that information. Um, if you look, um, it's in my addendum, the receipt that looks like it's from the Ramada Inn has a 176 written above it and that is his hotel room. So it was contained in the Did register. Mr. Leonard have a reasonable expectation of privacy as to his location in the hotel? I think given... Or in, what, in what his room number was. Yes, Your Honor. He did. Why? He had a reasonable expectation in the privacy and that because it was something um, disclosed only to the hotel for hotel purposes. It was something that, again, betrays the intimacies of life, as, was, as the court was discussing. But the hotel left, room it, number, as you just said, is given to the hotel, which means the hotel knows it, so therefore there's no reasonable expectation of privacy anymore. Under Katz and under USB Carpenter, I don't think that is um, and blanketly we, and true. And to be clear, because I just want to make sure I understand, um, it's on the registry, but do we know that that's how the police found out about what the room number is? Or does the record tell us that? Or does the record... 
because it could have just been the clerk saying it. You know what I mean? Or it, it could have been on the register. It was, it was on the evidence that the state presented um, to the trial court and uh, on the registry as it was presented to the trial court was the number. Um, given the lack of any other information, it, it's reasonable to assume that that is how they came upon his hotel room. There wasn't, it, it's not clear. It's best. not 100% clear, but again, it is written on the hotel registry, which was presented by the state. Is the fundamental test here on the reasonable expectation of privacy what basically what we think people in our society would think is private? Yes, Your Honor. That is the test under a longstanding United States Supreme Court precedent. It's what society is willing to impart as a reasonable so what, what people generally would think if they go to a hotel room, whether whether the fact that they're staying there is gonna be turned over to the police or not? Absolutely, I, um, Your Honor, no. I do not think that any individual goes to a hotel assuming that everything they give to the hotel for the purposes of staying at that hotel is turned over to police. Um, that's certainly not what I expect when I go into a hotel room. I expect that they, a hotel is using it for the hotel's purposes and not for police purposes. And that's where the reasonable expectation of privacy is. I mean, that's cats, that's basic Fourth Amendment. Yes, that is exactly in cats, Your Honor. Um, I'm seeing I'm about out of time, but I do just want to reaffirm that the uh, that this evidence, uh, that the evidence obtained from Mr. Leonard's hotel room should be suppressed and the Court of Appeals opinion reversed because Mr. Leonard did have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the information in the hotel registry. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.